Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And as we are recording this, this is Martin Luther King Day in America. So uh, I hope that everybody has a project that they can work on. And despite the weather in some parts of the country, hopefully you'll be able to do that. Um, today, uh, I have a special guest on the show. And um, I'm going to go ahead and, and do my normal introduction. And then uh, once I get through the introduction, we'll get into the interview. Uh, my guest today is Chicago native Michael Fosberg. Uh, Michael has spoken at nearly a thousand high schools, colleges, government agencies, corporations, law firms, and not-for-profits since 2005, utilizing his award-winning autobiographical story told in the form of a one-man play as an entry point for meaningful dialogues on race and identity. He has collaborated with a number of professional diversity practitioners on programs to foster deeper dialogue in corporate settings and at educational institutions. His work with groups such as the Boeing Company, United Way Worldwide, PNC Financial Services, Procter & Gamble, the U.S. Department of Treasury, and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency is reshaping the way organizations talk about race, identity, and diversity. Michael has been a frequent guest in the media speaking on these issues. In his latest book, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, offers readers several important tools to engage in authentic dialogue. In 2011, he published his memoir, Incognito, An American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. And he has just launched a series of unique virtual e-learning programs utilizing his award-winning play as an entry point for delving into uncomfortable conversations. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Michael Fosberg. Okay. Hey, Michael, how are you doing, sir? I'm great, Eric. Yourself? I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's winter time, so we finally <laughs> caught some down here in the South, so we're, we're good. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know we had tried to schedule something earlier, but uh, things happened. So um, I want to get right into it because I find your story fascinating from what I've read. So I, so I want the, the, the listeners to kind of get that experience. So my first question yeah. is, what is Incognito the play about? <laughs> so um, Incognito the play uh, started off as me writing um, my life story, something that happened to me in my life in my early 30s that uh, sort of uh, turned my entire life around, uh, you know, 180 degrees. Um, I was, uh, raised in a working class white family by my, um, biological mother who was of Armenian descent and an adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent. And when I was in my early thirties, uh, they announced that they were getting a divorce, which surprised every, my, myself and my two siblings, half siblings actually. And, uh, at that time I realized that I didn't actually know who my biological father was. As I mentioned, I, I again, growing up in a working class white family, I had my biological mother uh, and this adoptive stepfather, um, but my mother had never told me anything about my biological father, um, and I had never asked any questions. So when they announced they were getting a divorce, I was like, wait a minute, I don't even know who the first guy is. And so um, at that time, I was um, living with a, a British girlfriend, and she told me a story about um, growing up without her father. She, she, um, her father died when she was very young, about five years old, and she didn't grow up with her father then after that, of course. And she said, you know, your father might still be out there trying to find you or, or something, and so you need to go out and try to track him down, which I don't know why it never occurred to me before that. <laughs> I guess I'd always been sort of a scared kid. I didn't. I didn't. I was scared about a lot of stuff in my in my youth and and through my early teens and twenties. And so, 
I decided to try to do that. And she suggested, you know, you need to go and press your mother for some answers. So I, um, I, I called my mother and I asked, you know, about my biological father. Who was he and what, what could she tell me? And she gave me um, only a couple bits of information. She told me his name um, was John Sidney Woods and that the last time she had spoken with him, which was some 30 years prior to this time, um, that she thought he lived in the Detroit area. She wasn't sure, she thought maybe. And so armed with just those two pieces of information, those small fraction of information, I, uh, I set out for the library. Um, this was the age before we used the internet for everything. <laughs> you know, you just Google stuff, you know? That's right. But at that time, at that time I, I, I didn't have that, that you know, that, that access. So I, I went to the library. I was living in Santa Monica, California, in a little tiny apartment about the size of this, this screen. The apartment was that small. And I, uh, I, uh, I went to the library, and libraries used to have phone books. Remember those? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they libraries housed um, sections of phone books, so they would have major cities from around the country. And so I look, I got the Detroit phone book. I looked up his name. There were five or six listings for John Woods. I copied them all down. I raced home to my one room apartment. I paced back and forth. I was so scared, not sure what to do, what the next step was. I mean, obviously, I just got to call these people. What do I say? Well, how are they going to react? All these things. So I lined up all these questions in my mind. I picked up the phone. I called the first name on the list. And it turned out to be my father in the first phone call. And I, you know, now we're trying to wrap our heads around, okay, you're my dad, I'm your son. How do we go about talking? How do we go about catching up for 30 years? And then suddenly out of the blue, he says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, okay. I mean, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else could there be? Right. And he said, well, first of all, I want you to know that I've always loved you. And I've thought about you a lot. And that just, I mean, it went deep inside me i was just just i mean elated and then he said there's one other thing i'm sure your mother's never told you and i said what and he said i'm african-american and indeed you know having grown up in a white working class family as i said that just never occurred to me i mean i know i didn't know who my biological father was and that i was raised by a stepfather but it never occurred to me that my father could be black. And part of that might be from the fact of having white privilege, you know, not thinking outside the box that my dad could be black. And then he shared with me my family history dating all the way back to slavery. My great, great grandfather was a member of the 54th regiment in the colored infantry and in at the civil war. Hmm. My grandmother's father was an all-star pitcher in the Negro leagues. Um, and, uh, and my grandfather, um, was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University. Is named after him, and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Can we get back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the black part, you know." And uh, and we, you know, we said we'd stay in touch. We we exchanged phone numbers, and um, about a week later, I got a call at about six in the morning, waking me up from a deep sleep, and it was my granny. My granny was still alive. My grandparents were still alive. My granny called me. Um, to, to say hello, to welcome me back to the family. And, uh, and that was my journey. Um, and that story I tell in this play. As, as, as I mentioned, I started out writing this book about this journey, but because my background was always in acting and writing and directing, I got encouraged one day. I was reading some stories to some people, stories that I was writing for the book, and people were just blown away. And they were like, oh, man, you should be, you should be performing this. And then that's how it transformed into a play. And then the play transformed into this vehicle to help people have more meaningful conversations about race and identity. Um, and so I started touring to high schools and colleges uh, and, and doing it under the, the umbrella or the brand of what might be considered diversity and inclusion, like all schools, all all, all companies now do diversity and inclusion work. And so I, I, as I started to um, know, uh, understand more about that field, I started to brand 
this as a very unique way to go about having these very difficult and uncomfortable conversations in mixed company. And so I would play, I would, you know, perform the play and then facilitate a conversation following that because my play obviously has all these different issues about race, identity, family history, all these different things. And it opens up doors for people to have really enriching conversations. So you, you kind of answered uh, the second question I wanted is why did you do that? And you felt because of your background and all that, that was the best way to tell that story. Um, yes. So what have you learned about race relations in America while performing this play, doing all these corporate functions and university settings? What, what have you gotten out of that? <laughs> well, so that's, so that's a great question. That, that basically brings me right in to talk about the second book that I wrote. So I wrote, I, I did the play for about 10 years and I finally finished the memoirs called Incognito and American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery, which I published in 2011 and um, went around all over the place promoting that and selling that book. And then having done this, as mentioned, you know, for corporations and government agencies, for the military, for, you know, I found myself in front of the Department of Homeland Security doing a play for the Department of Homeland Security, for, for ICE, for the Department of Treasury, um, and all these different universities and high schools. And I learned all these different things going to all these different places. And what I did was I compiled all these different stories into a book called Nobody Wants to Talk About It. Right. Race, race, identity, and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations. And that is what I learned, in essence, across the country, is that really nobody wants... We talk about this all the time. People say, oh, we talk about that all the time. But we really, really don't. And I learned about all the different ways in which we avoid talking about it, both black and white mixed in coming together and talking about it. And the, the book really lays out a set of seven tools that can help people have more meaningful, authentic conversations about race and identity. So how hard is it to have an open dialogue about race? I mean, is it, what, what is, what is the main sticking point into make the, making that dialogue happen? Well, I would say that there, there isn't one main sticking point. And, okay. and the, reason I, the reason I say that is, is that one of the tools, that's the third tool in my list of tools, is that we have to recognize that there isn't just one way to have a conversation about race and identity. Okay. I mean, if there was one, if there was one way to do it, that would make it a lot easier, right? We right. don't be doing that, right? A plus B equals C. But there isn't one way to do that. Everybody has a different experience with race and identity, and we each bring those different experiences to the table, and that's what makes it so messy and so uncomfortable and so difficult, is that we, we, we think, well, we should be able to talk about this, but we each come at it from a different point of view, a different experience, and so therefore, um, there isn't one way to go about doing it. And when we try, you know, this person has, so, so for instance, in the, in the diversity and inclusion space, as it's referred to, there are lots of different people who are, are doing this work that I do both in corporations and all, all different kinds of venues. You've probably heard of, um, uh, Ibrahim Kinde, who, uh, who, um, Dr. Kinde wrote the book, um, Stamped. Um, uh, he also, uh, wrote the book, How to, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, there's a white woman by the name of Bev, uh, Robin D'Angelo who wrote a book called White Fragility. And there's, I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's dozens and dozens of books that written about, about how to go about having these conversations, whatnot. Some people like Robin D'Angelo's approach. Some people don't like it. Some people like Dr. Kinde's approach. Some people don't like it. Some people like my approach. Some people don't like it. That's the problem is that there isn't just one way and each of us come at it from a different place. And it um, it's difficult. And I try to, in in the work that I do, I try to get that point up front right away. Like I, I, I'm here, I'm gonna perform this play for you, which for many people in the corporate settings is like, you know, blows their mind. They're like, they've never seen anything like this. Like a play, how is that gonna help us have this conversation, right? But my play uses 
a, a proven theory that was um, postulated by a, a Harvard psychologist back in the 50s. It's called intergroup contact theory. And intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering that we have a lot more in common than we have different. And so I approach it from that standpoint. And again, for some people, and I say this at the beginning of sessions, when I finish doing the play and I start to talk back, I say, for many of you here today, you'll probably walk out of here inspired, sharing your story, talking to your colleagues, your family, your friends. But I know for a fact that there'll be a couple of people who will walk out of this room today thinking, oh man, that was a waste of my time. I can't get that time back. That's just a fact. We don't all see it the same way. And so let's recognize that up front. And now let's, let's, let's go about trying to have a, a, a more fulfilling conversation. You know, it is almost like it's a theological kind of concept. You know, there's, there's so many in the, in the Christian faith, there's so many denominations and everybody's trying to get to that point where they have that relationship. Right. And so that's what it sounds like with these, having these conversations that there's just, there seems to be so many different ways. And I understand, you know, people are individuals, but it just seems like there's so many different ways. I'm kind of concerned that just like the way that to me, the church doesn't address everything because everybody's doing it their own way. I'm kind of afraid that we will end up the same way in trying to have this discussion because everybody's, like you said, there's no one way, uh, and and people have these preferences. I, I, maybe I'm maybe I'm just being too pessimistic about it, but just kind of. <laughs> well, I, I I guess I would sort of agree with your pessimism to some degree. I mean, you know, again, I've been doing this for 15 years, and one of the questions I get asked quite often is, you know, how do I assess where we're at in our country with this conversation and where do I think it's going? And my, my answer is never that positive. I mean, there are certainly positive things happening. Look, the corporations and government agencies are doing this work. Um, some of them are very committed to it. Some of them are just doing it because they're checking off a box. Um, what I, it's like what I call um, some of them just talk the talk, but some of them actually walk the talk. Um, so that's, that's a positive. Um, but now we've come around, you know, sort of full circle since, um, last summer with the George Floyd protests and the marches across the world, which we all felt like was the precipice of a, of, of a racial reckoning. Well, where are we now? Now we've got school districts banning what they think is CRT, critical race theory. They don't even know what it is. They're banning it. And <laughs> what's included in that pocket that bag that crt bag is everything from teaching kids about slavery and history to work that i do diversity and inclusion work and so we've we've flipped we went we, we've like gone full circle on that in just a year right and so that's not a very positive place but i would say uh, uh, addressing something you mentioned earlier about about religions too is that we're not all a monolith like black people aren't a monolith Christians aren't a monolith. Um, Hindus aren't a monolith. You know, it's, it, we, we, we look at people from a group and we just see them all as the same. And that's not the case. And I think it behooves us to have a greater understanding of that, that we, that there are lots of different thoughts and beliefs within the black community, that there are lots of different thoughts and beliefs within Catholicism or whatever it might be. Yes, there's an overriding perhaps experience that each member of that group might have, but there's lots of variety. You know, the, the, the experts, the, uh, the, the anthropologists actually say there is more differences within a race than there are between races. And yet we don't acknowledge that. Hmm. Yeah, and I, that's a whole nother podcast I can get into <laughs> about that stuff. Um, so let me ask you, and it, it, being honest, have you received any pushback from African Americans when you tell your story? And um, is there, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's, 
malice based or or just a react a natural uh reaction but how do you and, and i say and i preface the question by saying i used to tell people there was this runner named zola bud i don't know if you remember her yes, but, but yes. her and nancy decker had these battles back yes. in the day and so Zola was from South Africa and then she became an American citizen. And so, you know, I used to, some of my friends would, you know, be talking stuff and I say, man, Zola Bud is more African American than you are. Cause he actually <laughs> came from Africa. You understand what I'm saying? So, I mean, you know, it's all about perception It's all about, you know, how people look at realities. So what kind of, based on that, what have you received any kind of, you know, pushback from your story? Absolutely. I actually, I have to address both of those, but one, I want to talk about the African-American. I had a really interesting thing happen to me. I was in, uh, I was at Southwest Missouri State University um, doing the play and then conducting a dialogue afterwards, of course. And uh, it was uh, the, the, the theater at the, at the school. It was, auditorium was packed. The play went really well. There's lots of funny moments in the play. There's lots of laughter, lots of um, very thought-provoking and very deeply um, emotional moments in the play. And that actually, um, the response to those is different from audience to audience, depending on how open people feel to laughing or how inhibited they feel. And so I can always have this great discussion afterwards when perhaps an audience hasn't laughed as much as I think they might um, I can de de detect that um, they might feel a little bit more uncomfortable, like, oh, should I be laughing at that? Or is that racist? You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, show went great. I go right into the talk back. I, I give a little uh, unpacking of the play, and then I open it up to questions. And right away, a woman in the front row, a, a white woman, raises her hand. And she says, I have a question for you. I said, what? She said, um, well, I was um, born in Pretoria, South Africa. And I moved to America about six or seven years ago. And I've been living here ever since. You know where this is going, right? Right. She's a white, she's a white, woman, white woman from South Africa. She's living in America now. She's an American. Yeah. She's African-American. Exactly. Just she's like, white. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. she's really African-American, but she's... So that was a great question. It was really like kind of blew everybody's mind that day in the audience because that sort of blows apart this whole idea of the labels that we use to define black people. Um, so that I just want to touch on that pushback. Yes, there's been all different kinds of pushback. Um, I've done the play for all black audiences, all white audiences, mixed audiences, all different kinds. Um, I did the play um, two... Well, I, I did it at the National Black Theater Festival in Winston-Salem, um, North Carolina. Um, they have that festival every other year, and I did it twice there, so two different sessions. It was fantastic. We had incredible talkbacks after predominantly Black audiences at that festival, which is a shame because it should be... I mean, it is open to all, but primarily Black audiences there. Um, there has been some pushback, and I'll, I'll, I remember very clearly the first time I experienced pushback from from an uh, African American audience member. And I was doing the show at Northwestern University, which I've had a long-standing relationship with for many years. And um, I, I, we had an audience—I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people in this auditorium—and I'm doing the play, and um, it's going really well. And there, there actually, there was a film crew in the theater that day filming it. That they were going to do some special. They were trying to put together like a short documentary or something. And as I'm doing the play, about I don't know, I'd say, I'd say 10, 15, maybe almost 20 minutes into the play, I notice a door at the back of the theater because you know you're up there by yourself, so you notice everything going on in the auditorium, even though you're doing the play at the same time. The door to the auditorium opens, and I notice a group of about six people come walking in. They come walking down the aisle. It's they're all black students. They come and they sit down a couple rows um, from the edge of the stage and they sit down and they settle in. And, you know, we keep doing I keep I mean, I don't stop doing the play. I just notice it. I keep doing the play. Um, goes great. Again, good reception. Actually, I think it's a standing ovation afterwards. And then um, we're going into some questions. And um, one of the members of this group of students that walked in late 
looked very um, disturbed by something. And one of the filmmakers saw that and she encouraged her to get up to the microphone and ask a question during the, the, the post-show Q&A. And so she got up and she said, um, you know, it really disturbs me that you are um, playing all these stereotypical black characters. They're all stereotypes and it's really quite disturbing to me. Hmm. And I was like, wow, I... I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know how to react. I, I, I don't, I don't, they're my family members. Right. Like I don't view them as stereotypes, nor do I purposely play them as stereotypes. There are some things about them that are stereotypical as there are about all of us. But she was very offended by that. And, and, and then as I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. You just came in 15 minutes late. There's a thing called CPT. <laughs> That's stereotypical, right? Yes. And, I, and I didn't say that out loud, but it's going through my head, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a really complicated. And then at the same time, a black woman, a black student on the other side of the auditorium stood up and shouted out, no, no, that was my auntie. His granny was my auntie. She's exactly like my auntie. Right. And I realized, wow, this is really interesting. And so I talked about, again, I don't, they're not stereotypes to me. They're my family. Why would I stereotype them? That would be offensive. I talked about um, this idea of stereotypes that we all have stereotypes amongst us, um, that some apply to us and some don't, but that's how we judge people. And then the third thing I brought up was, you are seeing what looks like a white guy portray black characters, which we rarely see. Unless you saw Tropic Thunder, which is a whole different, right. it's a whole different ball of wax. But it's a, but if my skin tone had been darker, you might perceive those characters as different. And then I, I realized something, and this I came to understand later was um, someone in 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 your city, there, Tyler Perry, has received pushback on on his um, Medea uh, family uh, and, and lots of people. But it's like one of the largest grossing things in the black community is movies. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people see themselves in those characters. Right. And John Leguizamo, uh, a Latin American performer who does solo pieces, also received pushback on his characters from the Latino community because they were saying those are stars. So, so it's a really complicated thing in which there is some pushback, but once you start to open the door for people and help them understand that it's a bigger thing than just stereotypes that they see. Yeah. yeah. And so Michael, let me say this and then I want you to close it out because we don't have that much more time. Yes. But I just want to say, I appreciate the fact that you weren't selfish with your story, that you decided to figure out a way to tell it and use it as a way to teach. So I wanted to say that while we were on the air. So as a teacher, um, what is your, in the last couple of minutes we got, what's your desired outcome? What do you want to see happen? What, I don't want to say legacy per se, but you put yourself out there to, to write the book and to, and to do the play, to tell your personal story. What do you want to see? What is the outcome you want to see to come out of that? I thank you for what you said, Eric. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to make a difference. I, I don't want, I, you know, I started out as an actor, as a writer, as a teacher, director. And um, sometimes when you're in the, the theater business or the entertainment business, um, a, a lot of times you're doing things like, I don't know, Bye Bye Birdie, Music Man, I, you know, musicals like that, or other, other things that are very light, um, that don't have a message, that don't make a powerful impact. And for me, my whole life, the, the kinds of entertainment that I've been more attracted to are things where you laugh your ass off while you're watching it, but then you walk out of the theater thinking deeply about what the message is. And I would like people to think deeply about the ways in which we talk or don't talk with one another. And hopefully I can give people tools that can help bring us together rather than tear us apart. And right now we need that desperately. 
um, that's that that would that's that's my goal. So, if people want to connect uh, to book you to connect to uh, have the the play um, to be able to buy the two books, yes. give give them some information. Absolutely, thank you for that. It's, uh, incognitotheplay.com, all one word. Incognitotheplay.com. You can find everything there, from video to. Um, you can purchase the books there. You get an autographed copy. There's um, a performance schedule there. There's you can you can email me there. Everything's at, at the website. Well, Michael, I I appreciate you spending, and I think it was appropriate to have somebody like you on this holiday to to do a show. So again, thank you, uh, and for my podcast listeners, uh, I'll catch y'all on the other side. Thanks, Eric. And so we're back. And um, wow, that was that was a pretty cool interview with with Michael. Uh, IncognitoThePlay.com. If you didn't get that, uh, go check out that website and uh, uh, you know check out the work that he's doing. Um, as as stated, as we're recording this, this is the uh, Martin Luther King holiday. And, um, I guess, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this whole racial reconciliation thing. And it was a realization that I had to come up with for me, um, you know, and that I had to accept, uh, my my fate my role in that right so you know i'm i'm a basically the first generation really of i would say first generation it you know we were the we were the kids that were born right at or right after the voting rights act the civil rights act was passed right so as our lives are developing as children and then as teenagers and as young adults and now as adults, it has been a journey, an evolution to see how those pieces of legislation tied in with all the other historic pieces of legislation and court decisions, how they were going to manifest into uh, a society that we were going to live in, right? Because we were not the children that had to drink out of separate water fountains. We were not the children that had to go to the back of the store to get something to eat. We weren't the children that had to sit in designated areas on a bus. You know, we, we were the children that went to integrated schools if we chose to. Um, and if things weren't going that way, then we had a government that's like, okay, well, we're going to make y'all go to certain schools at some point because we don't like what's happening. Um, so it was, it's always been just a constant evolution as far as how race relations were going. And there was always in the background pushback. And there's been pushback, not only in the white community, but there's been pushback in the black community as far as race relations. And now, you know, and I'm going to tell you this, and people can relate to it or not or whatever. When you're younger, you, you are more insular than you are as you're older. Right? And I say that because you depend on the people that look like you and closest to you your mom and your dad, right? So people that are supposed to be your aunties, your uncles, right? Your grandparents, your siblings, if you have those. I mean, 
that community. And so then there's friends that you develop in school. You probably go to a school that's pretty much looks like the folks that in the neighborhood you grew up in and therefore and such and such. And so if you grew up in an area that was diverse, you were exposed to a lot of things earlier than those of us who grew up in areas that were not, right? I grew up with a sense that as a black man, as an African-American, and I didn't need white people for anything. I grew up with that mindset because I went to a black bank, I went to a black school, went to a black grocery store. Even if you had a department store in the community where I was, all the people that worked there were black people. So I didn't need that. And you probably heard me say that before, and I don't mean it to say it in a radical or a militant or defiant tone. I'm just telling you what my mindset was. So I didn't need white people to validate me. I had black people who were teachers and lawyers and doctors and uh, pastors and, 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 and music directors and all these people that could validate me for who I was and and what kind of potential I had, what people believed in. And there were some white people in that mix too, especially when I got to high school or further up in elementary school. But for the most part, these are black people, right? In a black community that at that time was relatively safe. And so I didn't really need validation from anybody else. I was validated. I was accepted for who I was. Now, you know, among peers and stuff, I was the nerd. And so I had to deal with the, the athletes and the cool kids and all that stuff. But that's the typical social pattern in America, I guess. Uh, but I didn't. But as far as me being me, being a black person, I didn't I didn't need that. I, I, I didn't see anything wrong with being black at all. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I wish I was a little darker, actually. Kind of ran through my mind, like my dad's color as opposed to closer to mom's color, right? But, you know, that was, that was my experience. So naturally, when I got to an age where I could venture off and do more things and see more places, then it was like, you know, and I had seen people, you know, from Asian cultures and Latino cultures, but I didn't interact with them at all. It was just like, you know, uh, I my mom used to tell the story that used to embarrass me all the time. I guess I shouldn't tell it myself, but it was like they take me to Chinatown and I was like, mommy, look at Japani. So I was already wrong. In that sense, I'm in Chinatown and calling people Japanese. But I mean, I was like maybe two or three. So y'all forgive me for that. But I'm just saying, you know, it was it was more of a fascination and not an interwoven kind of experience, right? Not an interaction at all. It was just like those people I read about or saw on TV. And there they are. And that's it. It wasn't like anybody from those communities came to our apartment uh, or hung out at our family functions, you know, very few of them, as I got into high school, very few of them attended the school, but not that many. Um, so the older I got, the more exposed I was to people. And as a matter of fact, I, I really didn't get exposed, exposed. I had some exposure to white people because you, you you can't help it in Chicago. You can't help it in America per se. But my most exposure in interaction with white people came when I went to Mississippi, right? And so that kind of leads into what I want to talk about is that in Mississippi was where I started getting involved in groups that talked about racial reconciliation. Um, and there was a religious group, uh, called Mission Mississippi, 
who really, really made effort. There were several black and, and white pastors that really, really made an effort to try to bridge that gap. And their argument was, you know, we're Christians, right? So we're all in the body of Christ. So therefore we should all get along. Right. And so that was, that was their basic premise. And so their little niche that they used to do was, you know, once a week they would get together and pray. They would go to either a black church or a white church, have a, and basically have breakfast and prayer. You know, some days the breakfast was like bacon, eggs, and grits, and, you know, biscuits. And then some breakfasts was like donuts and fruit, right? Didn't matter. The effort was to get everybody together to pray. And it didn't matter what you look like, what denomination you were, all that. It was all about unity. And so, and that group still exists in Mississippi. It's still functioning. Um, I'm sure it's been more of a challenge over the last few years. Um, but, you know, it's still out there. And there's still people that believe in the core premise of that. Um, I think the the biggest concern that we had with that was politics intertwining but that's a whole nother conversation about politics and religion but as part of the reconciliation discussion those are two areas that really really play a major part in if that's going to happen in america uh we have a division in the Christian church. I know people are like, there are some people like, oh, wow, no, really? And there's other people like, hey, you can't really say that. We're all, and no, no. There's a division in the Christian church. It's been going on for a long, long time. Martin Luther King, the man whose birthday we're celebrating, said the most segregated moment in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. He said that, and he's right. You know, um, personal thing that happened to me, um, my grandmother passed recently and my condition in growing up in Chicago and living in Mississippi for a long time has always been that, you know, black, black people, when they die, usually black funeral home handles the arrangements and, and the service and all that. So I noticed that at my grandma's funeral was the white funeral. And so I kind of asked like, so there's no black funeral homes in, in this in here anymore. And they said, no, because the family, the younger kids decided not to follow and, the, and keep the family business going. So we have to choose between two white funeral homes and this one tends to do a better job as far as the service and blah, blah, you know. And I'm not saying anything about white funeral homes, Lord Jesus, or, or black funeral homes, but tradition has always been, whether you call it racist, whether you call it comfort, whatever, tradition always been that black funeral homes handle black clientele, white funeral homes handle white clientele, Jewish funeral homes handle Jewish clientele, and so on and so forth, right? And so, of course, as other cultures have come in, we've seen funeral homes diversify. But even at my exposure to things and having seen white funeral homes handle black services for other people, it still is always a noticeable moment when that happens, right? So it's always a noticeable moment when you see a church and you go to a church and you see that the pastor is white or black and the congregation is mixed. I mean, really mixed, not like 
three black people and a whole bunch of white or five white people, a whole bunch of black, no, like mixed, like 50, 50, literally. Right. And you see that and you're like, oh, what's going on at this church? Kind of makes you want to at least pop back in for another service or two just to really see what's happening. Right. Because I think, and then of course our politics, right. Has always been, or lately is totally defined by race. If you're black, you're a Democrat. If you're white, you're a Republican. If you're white and you're a Democrat, can black people really trust you? You, you feel me? I mean, we're, we're at that point. And so all of that ties into whether we can reconcile or not. And so we had this group that we had tried to set up. I, I can't remember the name now because I got disappointed. I had high hopes about it. The fact that I was considered uh, enough of a leader because I hadn't even been elected yet, but I've been considered enough of a leader in the community that I was asked to participate in this process. And, um, you know, it was like, it was a unique kind of thing. Um, where they, one of the strategies was that we were put into groups and try to mix, you know, make the group as diverse as possible. And then it was supposed to be like a book club where everybody in this particular group was assigned a book. We're all supposed to read it. And then we're all supposed to talk about it, talk about what we got out of the book and, you know, just kind of, go from there so it was the group that i was in i can't remember the name of the book now there's it's i just i just want to say was somebody along the lines of like a it wasn't malcolm x but it was somebody along that line right may have been franz fannin uh and i'm butchering his name now the wretched of the earth i think that was the book because it was a book that we had to read when we were in college. And so this was a book that was given to my group to, to, to read. And so we were supposed to have our first meeting and I'm not calling anybody out by name. Cause I, I really didn't fall out with people with this, but I really was just kind of turned off. And so, you know, it was this white guy who uh, was pretty prominent person in the group, in the community even, who was in our group, very outspoken. And so first day we're supposed to kind of talk about where we're at in the book. And, you know, I think we were supposed to all read at least the first two chapters. And he just basically said, yeah, I didn't read a book. I didn't like the title. I read a little bit about the dude that wrote the book and what was going on. And, and yeah, yeah, that's, I'm not going to get anything constructive out of the book, which prompted another very outspoken black man to basically say, so you're that racist that you can't even just read a book. Oh my God, it was on. It was on at that point. It was just like, how dare you? It's like, you're supposed to be reconciling. Well, reconciling means just doing something. It, oh, man. So about 50 minutes, and I, I didn't have to say anything. It was it was like, Fleming, I got you 50-yard line seats at the Super Bowl. Right now, you got to go, and you're right there, right? It was that kind of moment <laughs> where it was just like, they were having this vigorous and debate about who was the most racist and why won't you read a book by a black author? I, you know, it was just, it was intense, but it also gave, made me come to a, a sad realization that my generation is not going to be that generation to fix it. I said, you know, we were going to be the first ones to show and we could lead the way. 
And I think we still can lead the way. But based on the fact now that we're approaching, we're, you know, a lot of us are AARP people, right? That we've come to a realization like, yeah, we can't fix it. We thought we were going to fix it. And we thought we were going to fix it by excellence. We thought we were going to fix it by being in every possible realm you could think of, whether it was athletics, entertainment, sports, I mean, you know, athletics, sports, science, uh, politics, religion. You were going to see black men and women in these spots, in these leadership spots, excelling in all of this stuff. And we have seen that happen. But the end result was that because you've seen us in everything, you will accept us in everything. And that racism thing would go away. That was our belief. That was our core belief that if we excelled in everything, if we had a person in in business and science, we had black billionaires and well, we weren't thinking billionaires, just millionaires at the time. We, We didn't. We didn't, when we were younger, we couldn't conceive one person having a billion dollars worth of wealth, right? But, you know, we were, we just felt that if if we had a black person, kind of like just sending people to the moon, it was like we went to the moon, changed everything, right? We felt that if we had black people in every facet of life, where any way you turn, whether you went to a bank, whether you went to the doctor, whatever, you saw a black person and a black person doing well, that would that would end end it. I would just shut it down. Racism would be no more. And I know that was idealistic, but you're young. You're supposed to be idealistic when you're young. But that was our that was our belief. That was kind of our motivation. We wanted to do well for ourselves, but as far as Overall, for the community, a lot of us felt that, you know, if they see us outside of the stereotypes, they see us be us amongst them, then we can end this stuff. And I think maybe we were on the right track to that. I think when you started seeing black athletes, not just in traditional like football or basketball or even baseball, which became traditional, it it was like when you started seeing them in golf and tennis, like really, you know, how did they even get access to a court or a golf course, right? Let alone Excel. That was a major, major deal. Y'all, y'all may want to downplay it or not, but that was huge to see black faces excelling in those sports, dominating in those sports. That was huge. And even though tennis had it before golf, as far as in the public eye, it's still just to see the Williams sisters, to see Tiger Woods, them kids from California. Keep that in mind. Jack Robinson was California too, even though he, born in Georgia. He's a California kid too. Just keep that in mind. So anyway, you 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 saw that and that was like, boom, that changes perception. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So Tiger Wood might be in Venus, might be in Vegas with Lil Wayne and all the rest of them. That's Jay-Z. That's fine. They're black people, black people, right? They had a party, had a function, whatever together. Great. But in their individual professions, they were like the best at it. And we just felt that if we all were doing the best and and excelling in our fields, that that would chip that away. And the reality is it didn't even sway a man in our book club group to read a book, <laughs> right? Let alone change his perception about who we are and where we are, what what our standing is, right? The fact that a man who would have been 93 years old today, as we're recording this, uh, gave a speech 50 years ago that still hits people to the core. When you talk about America having second-class citizens, 
right? That we still have that. And we still have people that have a mindset that that's okay. If they're going to have to be citizens, then they need to be second class. They can't be with us white folks. That's, that's still out there. And so when you see people like a Michael Forsberg, when you run into people like a Calvin Corelli, you know, who want to at least have this dialogue, right? When you, when you run into other people of color who want to interact with each other and indigenous people, right? To, to really figure out how we're going to make this America really, really work. Because the reality is, again, we are going to be the majority people of color, black, indigenous, and other people of color, right? That's a new thing I, I picked up on. But people of color, bottom line, are going to be the majority of the population not one particular group over another one, just collectively, people of color will be the majority of the population. So we got to figure out how we're going to make this thing work. How are we going to make America work for future generations from that point forward? How are we going to continue to develop relationships with the white community that are going to continue to be positive even though the paradigm is shifting or would have by that time shifted, right? So my generation did not fulfill its promise to be the eradicator of racism through our efforts and our achievements. But we feel though that because we made that effort to be seen, that we've laid a foundation for generations afterwards to keep building on and to keep uh, pressing toward that high mark, right? Um, now, again, I have said it on previous podcasts, white supremacy and racism is on life support. Now, they're kicking pretty hard even though they're on life support, they're pretty loud. But it's the fact that they are going through all these machinations, the fact that all this stuff, this reckoning is is happening, gives me hope that we're about to turn the corner. Maybe I'll be blessed to live long to see it. Probably not. But I hope that my grandson, whenever he or she, or grandchild, I should say, he or she, whenever they show up, that they would live in that world, right? Um, and so I commend any and everybody that really wants to see us reconcile. I think there's going to have to be some hard decisions that need to be made. I don't think a lot of those decisions are in our communities. I think those decisions have to be made in the white community. Um, and I think there needs to be a major commitment in the white community to educate every white person to the best of their ability and give them hope um, so that they won't have to lean on this false nobility of white supremacy to get by, right? That failure to that would lead them to drugs and all that. It, it's time to it's time to change the dynamic. There's some work that we have to do in the POC community, but so a lot of work needs to be done in the white community. And I commend people like Michael Fosberg, who uh, who honestly is African-American, uh, you know, but for the work that they're doing 
And, um, you know, we, like I said, we didn't, we didn't conquer the Mount Everest of our generation. We didn't reach that summit, but I think we've created a path to get there. And I hope that we can do it in a peaceful setting. And I'll leave it at that until next time.